0: Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is episode five. And this is taken from the archives of an older podcast I had recorded about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. But this is a really good one, because the next four episodes on the Film Trooper Podcast is an in-depth interview with screenwriter Randall Johnson who wrote the movie The Doors and Mask of Zorro. And he and his family moved up to Portland, Oregon about, I think, six years ago. And he still makes a living as a screenwriter. And this is some good stuff, and it's worth listening to. It's quite long, but this is a really great chance to get a really in-depth interview with somebody who's worked in the industry for several years, um, who could share some great war stories of what it's like to be a screenwriter in Hollywood and then leaving Hollywood to still be a screenwriter um, in another city, anywhere you live. This was recorded in Oregon City at the Highland Stillhouse, which is like a Scottish uh, bar and pub. So it's pretty cool, and it's worth checking out if you've had a chance to visit um, Portland, Oregon. This is about like 15, 20 minutes uh, south of um, the city. But um, here it is. Enjoy. Probably the main reason I started this uh, podcast was I was excited. I was hoping to get you as like my first guest. <laughs> so it's been a long time coming just to get you to yeah, uh, because be because part my, of it.
1: M- my tricky schedule, very 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 busy. You had to go through <laughs> my agent, uh, countless
0: calls. Definitely, yeah, definitely yeah, got yeah. you there. <laughs> but um, but so, so yeah, so cheers. Cheers. We, yeah, man, like weird. you said, we are at the Highland Stillhouse in Oregon City. In Oregon City. In Oregon City in, uh, so Correct. Oregon City used to be the. Um, Um, the original capital of Oregon before uh, it was, they moved to Salem. But Oregon correct. City, was it sort of the last city or the city established at the end of the Oregon Trail? Was That, uh, it?
1: that is correct, and it was also auspicious in that it was um, settled by a, uh, a guy who bailed out of the Hudson's Bay Company uh, in the fur trade, uh, Dr. John McLaughlin, and settled down um, and put a, a, a trading post right at the foot of the Willamette River Falls here. which was the site of a magnificent uh, Native American metropolis and had been for thousands, probably thousands of years. Uh, and he just came and planted his his, his uh, trading post right there at the right in the midst of it, really? and took a, uh, a Native American woman for a wife, I believe. Um, <laughs> his biography is or is his story is one of the things that's on my list to really read about. But it's a fascinating story. But this was back in the 1840s, I believe.
0: Well, oh, so it wasn't. Wow. Okay. So and, I mean, when I think about it, it's like. Uh, what was the Oregon Trail? Was early 1800s, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: it started in the 18, uh, re- Really in the 1840s. You know, oh, once, so, okay. once Oregon, the, the Oregon Territory was established, and they, the word got out of the very fertile farmland, right? And potential of it, it started creating the the migration west.
0: You know, um, it's funny. My, I went on a field trip with my daughter. They went to uh, the Foster Farms over in Oregon City. It was mm-hmm, one of the first like farms outposts for all the. Um, um, you know, pioneers coming in from uh, the Oregon Trail. Yeah. And Foster, he uh, was successful starting up like a general store on, in Boston or something like that. Hmm. And once he saw that the Oregon Territory was opening up, he decided not to take the Oregon Trail. He took a ship with his family and he took his business and decided to open up another store over here in Oregon. Hmm. But he took the route of t- going down the Atlantic, all the way down past um, the tip of Chile, you know, down there, in this, um, the the Pacific, coming all the way up to Pacific. So he sure. never he took yeah. that route all the way uh, instead of taking the, the wagon train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so sure. he established an option. So he established um, the farm and like the outposts of where people came through. Uh, uh, Mountain Hood right so and they would help actually carve out some roads and passages because when I think people when the pioneers came to Oregon either they were going to take the Columbia River all the way you know down or some would take try to get through Mountain Hood mm-hmm. so those who try to venture and get through Mountain Hood they had to um, you know they got stuck or something like that so Foster and his people end up you know helping them out helping out a lot of pioneers and developing a road there mm-hmm. so they so he, he had this outpost, and, and he had the general store there, he had the farm, he had like a little, you know, uh, like mini, what do you call it, lodges or inns, you know, where people could stay, so it was like, mm-hmm. it was the first site of civilization for a lot of pioneers after his long journey, wow. and he just made a killing, yeah. and so they have yeah. this farm that you can go to, huh. it's an educational farm, but it's still walking through the house, you know, seeing the stuff they used, seeing the farm, oh, seeing the barn, and it was just oh, that's neat. It made all, yeah. it was it allowed all the kids to like, you know, really hands-on experience what it could have, would have been like as a, um, you know, a pioneer on the Oregon Trail. Wow! So it was a little bit of history that I had no idea about. Sure. but I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Sure. But they I mean, have yeah. they
1: have a, uh, a museum over here for the Oregon Trail Museum, hmm. which I believe has been shut down now because of. Last Of funding because of the budget cuts and everything else, but that was um, one of the things. I, I've been amused actually since I moved up here from California that uh, you know, no. No. that with the Oregon Trail um, that was the the overland route that a lot of uh, people who were heading to the California Gold Rush took. Oh, really? You know? Yeah. And so at one point, you know, you you have uh, the trail diverts, you know, and you go. Go to California and s- search for gold, or you go to Oregon and grow, right, th- grow right. things. You know, and I think that was a very interesting dichotomy there of where you know it, it, it sort of it really underscores the differences between California and Oregon now that is I. Look that at not that funny? It. Because that's sort
0: yeah. of the what exists today. Well,
1: I'm, that's my you know. point. That's my point yeah. exactly. So yeah. I'm a little slow today. That's, that's all right, <laughs> Scott. We'll just have another have another
0: beer there, and you'll you'll catch up. Um, <laughs> that was a great segue. So. One of the things I wanted to do with you is like I one of my favorite podcasts is the Creative Screenwriting um, Podcast hosted by Jeff Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. And he's now since left as senior editor of Creative creative Screenwriting Magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started his own podcast called uh, Q&A, Question and Answer with Jeff Goldsmith. Because he's been really instrumental in in holding these uh, free screenings down in Los Angeles of just different movies. And at the end of every, these free screenings at the end of every movie, he would have um, the screenwriters there to oh. like talk for like an hour and a half about the movie, their their experience and all that kind of stuff. Wow, what a concept. Actually having the writer, oh I know, I know. And he's he's great. And I, I really enjoy like mm-hmm. his style of interviewing and mm-hmm. you know and I could tell like sometimes he's polite to like some of the people or some of the work that they've done. But inside I could tell like that comic book geek in him wants to go What were you thinking? You know, that kind of thing. But he's still very cordial about it. Sure. He actually happened to be, uh, in college, a roommate of Dave Jaffe. Dave Jaffe was the creator of God of War and uh, some of the Twisted Metal series who I, I worked with at Sony for many years. So when I met up with Jeff, you know, I introduced myself via that way. So right. he was very cool but he's very busy and, and again, for anybody who wants to check out his stuff, definitely check out um, Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith or some of the past stuff on Creative Screenwriting, Screenwriting Magazine. But anyway, this is my chance to do my really horrible impersonation of Jeff interviewing you, Randall, as if like we just finished a screening and, you know, and, and we had this big audience, but right now we're just, we have this cool little pub. It's funny because side note is I normally do my, um, podcast down at Mars Irish pub. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to suggest that for you as well. Yeah. So we go there every other week, my buddy Frederick and I, Uh and we go down and he knows everybody there. And Uh so we're, we're regulars there every, like every other Monday night. Okay. Um, but it's funny that it's an Irish pub, and here we are At across the way in Oregon City in a Scottish Irish pub again. It's, so they will tell you it's a Scottish pub.
1: There won't be. For, there's not much in it. not much Irish here. Okay, good. No, you know, no. although That's, I do see the Bank of Ireland. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. I framed there over go. there, you know. But uh, if they had a choice, it would be. You know, basically, it's anti English. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's charming. I mean, yeah. both places are just charming on this, like, old style bar. So anybody who yeah. gets up here, you got to check out these places. Yeah. So we have Mars, Irish Pub, and LO. Yeah. And we have the Highland Stillhouse Still Still House here in Oregon City. Yeah. Which, so,
1: which, if you're a fan of single malt scotches, this has one of the best collections. You you will find uh, anywhere, and hmm. um, arguably even on the entire West Coast. So this the the Mick and his wife, who own the place, are huge Scotch files, and they're
0: just. Uh, I have to learn really, more about this. Yeah. I, I have. This, I had this innate desire to want to get into. Yeah, cases yeah, for yeah Scotch. Well, there's part of it.
1: I, I, I was. <laughs> I honeymoon in, in Scotland, and so that's where oh, okay. I started, that's where I started,
0: <laughs> you know, acquiring the taste. And so it was it was uh, it was more of a, you were acquiring. You weren't just because now you are married. You were just drinking more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I started
1: well, drinking. I come well, I come up for excuses to
0: drink more. You know, <laughs> I started drinking. I used to never drink until my daughter was born. Yeah. And then I started to drink
1: and drink a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. It weighs upon you heavily. So anyway. (laughs) Being the
0: parent. (laughs) So I wanted to, the first question that Jeff always asks Mm -hmm. is he always wants to know breaking in stories of like how you got started in the business or what was your like your first paying job or how, how, you know, yeah, how you broke in. Well, I I went to film school at UCLA, and
1: and at that time, I entered the film school there in 1979, and you were basically thrown into a a little life raft with a bunch of other people that had the same aspirations to either be a writer, director, working in, in the film industry in one way or another.
0: And so you... Yep. Well, I was real quick, was that time, the late 70s, like, because I know that... This is the very late 70s, 79, yeah, yeah so when that, I started. So, but I was wondering if, like, the early 80s, was it, um, I can't remember, was there a golden age of, like, where where everybody wanted to go to film school? Because I know that well, there was a kind of a, something the, in the, the 60s. The,
1: the film school sort of bonanza uh, occurred in the... Uh, I would say probably the mid seventies, okay, and and carried on all through in, into the early eighties, yeah. um, and that was basically because George Lucas, yeah. Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, Ron Howard, they were all products of film school. Right. You know, Francis Coppola, of course. Apollo, you know, all those yeah, guys, right, yeah, and Scorsese, yes, me and NYU, yeah, NYU, of course, and so and. That was it. I mean, basically, we just covered the film school landscape at that time. There was three places to go, USC, UCLA, and NYU. Right. And for me, I had grown up in the San Diego area, uh, and I couldn't afford going to SC, and NYU was just about as far removed from a Southern California <laughs> beach as possible, Um and I used to go with my dad, who worked for the UC system, up to see basketball games at uh, UCLA when John Wooden was coaching there. So um, that was a, the, sort of the natural place to, okay. to go to. And it was vastly um, cheaper than SC. Right, and, right. And, and actually what I liked about SC, that there were differences in the curriculum at that time, too, which was that if you wanted to be um, – if you if you had a very specific – Idea of what you wanted to do in the in the film industry, whether you wanted to be a sound editor or an editor or a, a cinematographer or a director, producer, whatever, you would go to SC because they had very clear tracks okay. on each of those okay. those specific professions. Yeah. UCLA it was much much looser, and they were kind of had this, had sort of the stigma, if you will, uh, of being, of creating auteurs, <laughs> um, you know, you were, you were the complete filmmaker in a sense, once you came out of UCLA. But the difference, another difference was, is that you had to fund all your own stuff, uh, <laughs> after, after, uh, the basic super eight class that occurred, uh, when you first entered school, uh, it didn't happen. You had to, um, they funded the advanced projects, um, but you had to compete with other. Other people to get that one or two uh, directing positions right. that they would do. Anyone could be a director at UCLA if you had the money for it. Which you. to me it was really like the real world. Exactly. Um, much more like the real Didn't world. Coppola to UCLA? Yeah. Yeah. Coppola right. came to UCLA. Uh, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek of the Doors were there. Oh, okay. Um, you know that was in the that was that's in right, the very right. early 60s. Right. Um, you know, but uh, I mean, there, there's you know Paul. Um, Oh, um, psh, names! I knew this would happen. The names start fading, you know, from me. <laughs> who wrote uh, Taxi Driver? Um, Schrader, and, uh, right? Paul Schrader. Right. Thank you. I uh, went to UCLA. Um, you know, I mean, the 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 list of names is very long and prominent. Right, that, that right. UCLA has produced and and, and SC as well. So Do you
0: know, you when know. I went to uh, UCSD, uh huh, and. Um, I was looking around. I went to junior college first. Um, Went to um, Palomar College, right? And. The only fame claim to fame we had there was that um, Phil Tippett was a mm-hmm. uh, famous visual effects mm-hmm. artist mm-hmm. Um, from the Star Wars films yep. and his you know all his stop motion. I
1: interviewed Phil when I wrote for the Carlsbad Journal back in 1976. Oh, okay, I so you know, okay, great, right, right, right?
0: So his claim to fame was that he went to that school. Right. So it was a great, you know, two year school. You get out, sure. You then you could transfer anywhere. And then I didn't know where to go exactly. Mm-hmm. I looked at San Francisco State. I looked at USC. USC mm-hmm. I looked at UCLA. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I decided of all places to go which probably wasn't the best choice of film school, but I don't know, it was nearby <laughs> and, and near near a beach, <laughs> near a beach, definitely, near, definitely. So the funny thing was, I spent a lot more time when I was there because the way they had the the film track was that everything was really dedicated towards the graduate film students. Right. As an undergrad, you were you didn't really get a chance to. Get, too hands-on, knowing that now I probably should have gone to maybe like San Diego State, which is much more of a more of a vocational approach to the education. But I spent a lot of time with this graduate film student from UCLA who was doing her um, thesis or her work down in UCSD. So she had access to all the you know the editing bays, the rooms, and she's trying to finish her her thesis. And she just needed an assistant, so I was there, and I got all this hands-on training of how to like you know cut film and. You know, Great. put all this stuff together yeah. and then she would, I would go up with her, um, on a regular basis to UCLA and just, I was crashing courses. I didn't even go to this school, but I was at UCLA just sitting in at the sure. courses. So, uh, kind of gave me a different perspective of things, but maybe anyway, that's yeah. my yeah. UCLA condition. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, there you go. Well, um, at that time, again, this is in the late seventies. You know, those were the three places to go. Now, right. it's, the landscape is vastly different. Every almost every college has a, a film department or a media department, mm-hmm. something something like that. So, I mean, that just shows you how thing things have changed. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, w- I went through the f- the film program, and at UCLA at that time, they didn't have a, or, or the difference. There was no difference between the undergrad and the graduate oh, programs. Nice.
0: Those okay. days. <laughs> yeah, those days.
1: Um, literally in my, in my second year there, the graduate students uh, rebelled and staged a little um, uh, demonstration uh, and really forced the hand of the school to uh, alter the curriculum in a sense to favor grad students because basically and and I think they had a legitimate beef they were competing with you know freshmen who were right. new to the or uh, new to the department uh, for you know the limited amount of materials and cameras and things that we had to do their graduate films right. and so which were really wasn't fair so they did an overhaul of the curriculum and my like or uh, they they didn't do it overnight. it actually happened right after I graduated so basically <laughs> I benefited from a have basically had a graduate education. As an undergrad. Oh, okay. Because I, I stuck it out and went an extra year as a, as an undergrad. Right. I, so and I suffered later. They, yeah. Okay. And, they, <laughs> and then they kicked me out and they said, it's time for you to move on. Because oh, really? I, yeah, I had maxed out every unit possible. But knowing that, uh, I took every writing class I wanted to When I first got in there, I, wanted, I was hoping to be a director. I, that was my aspiration. Oh, okay. Like everybody else, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was going to ask you. But so. you, you had to fund your own... Films, um, and I didn't have that kind of money, um, you know. Um, so I realized that well, typing paper was cheap at that point, and I said, "Well, shoot, I'm just gonna I'm gonna write and I'm gonna direct my movies on paper, and then eventually, if I get enough." Clout. I will be able to direct something that I write myself. So that yeah. was that was the philosophy. That hasn't happened, right. by the way, but <laughs> <laughs> it has happened for
0: a lot of people that I know. Oh. Um, now you wrote. Yeah. So you uh, were a writer when you were younger too. Like you wrote well the paper as a.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I was. I, I started writing like as soon as I learned to write. You know, I just was. I had kind of spates where I was very well, prolific. Third grade, especially seventh grade, was also um, a big one. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, but I I initially wanted to be a journalist Um, I I actually wanted to be Cameron Crowe because I loved Rolling Stone and loved music still when I was in high school that that's what I was aspiring to be was to be like a music uh, journalist of some sort Um, there was a great writer for Rolling Stone at that point Um, I think he's back now writing some stuff for them again but named Charles M. Young who did just some fantastic interviews with like the Sex Pistols and Kiss and I still have Those issues because the the writing is just so so funny and insightful and really great and just inspired me a great deal to be um, to be you know and and this was the era too where Tom Wolfe was. Doing, um, you know, electric kool aid acid test on the heels of that, kind of what is known as the new journalism. Okay, uh, where it was just wasn't real cut and dry, but actually there was a great deal of reportage uh, um, going on <laughs> and and uh, um, quasi sermonizing that would be <laughs> worked in by. Uh, the likes of Charles M. Young, or um, um, you know, the, the, our Gonzo Hunter Thompson right. kind of right. you know people of that sort. It was a new, it was an interesting time to be in journalism. Um, and then, I I wanted to be a magazine freelance magazine writer. I thought, you yeah. Know? Uh, and then I realized I probably really couldn't make a whole lot of money at it. Um, but I and I had started working for my hometown newspaper in Carlsbad, California, writing uh, writing sports for them. And then in the summertime when I was out of high school, it worked into full-time work where I was doing feature articles. So I was interviewing surfers and runners. And, and uh, Carlsbad was also the site of a motocross um, uh, scene. scene out there and doing some reporting on that. It was just a lot of it – was, it was very interesting. And I learned how to interview people at an early age, which was a great thing. Then um, I knew that I wanted to continue with writing of some sort of prof- but uh, in my studies at school, but I just wasn't sure what kind it was. So I, I, I too went to a community college, Maricosta. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, just because I was working at the at the newspaper still, and I was getting experience there, um, part time, and I thought, well, I'll get a couple more years there experience, and then take classes and get my basic. Education out of the way, and then by that time maybe I'll know what to do. And I happened to take a, a playwriting course, and that was very interesting. That opened up my eyes to dramatic writing, and I and uh, I realized that yeah, playwriting wasn't quite it for me, but screenwriting. Ooh, <laughs> that sounded very avant-garde and very cool. So uh, you, that's what I
0: do. You call, like, on. like maybe like in the first moments that you like wrote a piece or a paragraph or something there, somebody else wrote and you were able to witness sort of a a positive sort of emotional response from it versus like a, like a one moment like you wrote something where maybe you felt good about it or somebody else's reaction to it was surprising but it, it, it you know what i mean it's just like it it made you Want to keep going, or go, um, or want more of that, or anyth- or, or feedback um, on that? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I wrote three scripts when I was at UCLA, three full-length scripts, and they were pretty abysmal. Um, <laughs> but my instructors were very supportive. Mm-hmm. I got A's on them. Okay. Um uh, oh, yes, yes, that's right for here. Thank you. What did they call
0: Scottish eggs?
1: Yeah, the Scotch eggs. Scotch eggs. Yeah. Yummy. Um, and that was initially, I think be studying and doing that to get that kind of thumbs up from them was very positive. Okay, you know, that that made a big impression on me. Um, and then once I got out of school to have some peers of mine to just kind of uh, comment. There's mustard right there. You can dip oh, that into that. Um, that was positive, but nothing was as strong as getting. Um, um, the kind of the endorsement of a true professional, somebody working in the business. God, I just mangled this
0: one. This you made it station. a masher? No, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all right. There we go. Mm. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's It's funny... Um, Get my tra- I'm getting my train of thought right now. This is really delicious. I know. So. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. We can keep... Don't worry about this. I pause. cut this out. Okay. This mm. is good. Oh, I know. Well, I mean, this. I mean, this is like your interview. Oh. So it's like... <laughs> and the food. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yummy.
1: Oh, yeah, there's more mustard right there. Mm. Yeah, I got some on this side. Yeah, so it's an egg It's wrapped in sausage and deep fried.
0: Mm. It's really healthy. So, so, is it a boiled egg first, and then they put it into like a sausage and they have to fry oh, that? I think so, yeah. Mm.
1: No. I love sure it, um, this beer I'm drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, this is yummy. It's a great place to be in any time, but I love coming here on a when it's howling wind out and cold. Oh,
0: and, there you go. You no. Know, and uh, Well, this place is located right by the river. Um, right. right. This is the, the falls. Yeah. This the fall. Like, is it the Willamette Falls? Yeah. Willamette. Falls. Right. So, it definitely has a propensity for the wind and the weather change. So. Mm-hmm. Um before the uh,
1: paper mill was shut down, certain fumes wafting up from from the mill mm. <laughs> would uh, sort of sweeten things <laughs> and ah. i mean that I mean that facetiously. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: So, yeah, so anyway, so can you recall, like, um, well, let me, I'll backtrack. Do you recall, like, one movie, like, a movie experience you had where you thought to yourself that you were, like, moved or inspired to say, yeah, I, I want more of this? Or, like, for me as a kid, I remember... You know, movies were just always sort of part of just growing up. But the first time I remember seeing sort of a let's say a, a, a more mature, non-sort of spectacle movie, you know, that I realized mm-hmm. was different than mm-hmm. what I had seen before it was when my parents I think took me to see Amadeus. Oh. oh, you know, so I was floored by that movie because I thought to myself, I just went through something that I never thought I would be entertained by. Because I thought it had to have like you know, laser guns or cowboys or Indians or aliens or spaceships or explosions. Because that's you know that was my appetite. Just that I was second nature. But once I was introduced to a film that was had none of that but engaged and and, and captured my interest, it definitely changed something in me. As well as another film that I wasn't expecting to was somewhere in time with Christopher (laughs) Reeve. Because I was just like, oh, Superman. But to me, I was like, what was that? And I, that, that got to me. And so I remember those two films of all films that sort of no. changed my perspective. And then I remember having, um, when I got into college, I wasn't thinking about film. I was thinking about studying illustration and art. I went there for that, but then got sort of the film bug myself and came across, I had to take a script writing class. It was very, very cheesy, but... I remember going to the library at the time. This is before the Internet. You actually had to go to the library oh, yeah, check out the reference books. Yep. And they had real scripts. And I remember reading mm-hmm. Ordinary People. And I'd never seen the film. I just read the screenplay and I remember just it was just turning the page after turning the page because so, I just had to get through it but just having that ex- first experience of absorbing what a script looks like, it, and I didn't know what all, you know, all the little things meant you know, what is mm-hmm. INT, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff we started beginning to figure out little code or the language, but I remember having that significant moment as well, coming out of that going, what did I just read, what did I just yeah. experience, I, and I, yeah. I wanted to ask you, did you have anything like that
1: well, I, I did as a kid. Um, this is, I mean, going way back, and I really would have to say that I didn't know the impact that it would had on me at the time. Obviously, but um, it, it's really almost now that I look back on those times. And they, now I understand why I was so moved and influenced by, and, and this is. It goes back to when. We first moved to California, and my parents um, were running uh, a beachfront motel in uh, Oceanside oh. called the Buccaneer, which was um, that's at, right at Buccaneer Beach, you know, in in Oceanside, and it. Uh, It had all these pirate motifs and everything (laughs) like that. So, my first five years in California after moving from Utah, uh, (laughs) we're here at the Buccaneer Motel with all the pirate motifs running around there. And I used to, you know, run around there and have have a lot of fun and meet a lot of different people that were staying there. But they would always, on the weekends, we would go. um, My parents would take a break because we lived on the premises, Mm -hmm. there was no escape from it. Uh, My parents would go to a drive and moving out, out in Oceanside, and, oh, the, that one? and yeah, yeah, and it's, so the
0: the it's an airfield now. Yeah, yeah, it
1: is, and the 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 ritual was basically they would pop their own popcorn ahead of time, <laughs> put it into a big brown paper market sack, and we would they would take a cooler full of Cragmont sodas, and they would put me in PJs. I had two older brothers who were 10 and 12 years older than me, so they didn't want to, they were teenagers by this time. They didn't want to have anything to do with that, so they would just stay at home. Uh, But I would go with my parents um, with them to the drive in. And then I would be in my PJs, and they would always hope that I would fall asleep in in the back seat. At least that was the plan while they watched uh, these, you know, sometimes very adult movies. And lo and behold, I never fell asleep once because I was so intrigued. By what I was seeing, and I can tell you exactly what I saw. You know, I saw Bonnie and Clyde. Whoa! They take yeah, you that? yeah. Well, <laughs> I think they had intended that I had fallen fall asleep. asleep. They had no idea, and I don't. I, and I, they probably were. They were not film savvy at all. They were probably didn't have any idea what they were in store for. Um, but uh, I I recall. I recall very clearly um, uh, the opening frames of that where you see, you know, the naked uh, mm-hmm. uh, Faye Dunaway and right. her, her butt, you know, up there on that wow, big screen. And I just, my eyes grew out really wide. And <laughs> you know, I'm going, wow, this is wild. And I was just riveted you know, from that point on. And then on it ends from, in a great, funny oh, I mean, bath, just which did, oh, at that time yeah. was... Oh, I mean, I, I can still recall being in the back seat and seeing my parents uh visibly recoil hmm. from the one the, after they make the one robbery and the guy comes out and try and stands in front of the car and tries to either he's, he's got some kind of a weapon at him but they run him down and he ends up hitting the windshield mm-hmm. and and falling off it my parents just like wow getting right. kind of gasping over over the violence of that and i was like wow so Bonnie and Clyde, I saw Bonnie and Clyde, I saw In the Heat of the Night, um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Wow. To Sir With Love, uh, Patton with my dad, Planet of the Apes. Then my dad and I started going and seeing oh, okay. some of these uh, original, uh, uh, I mean, my mom stayed at home for some reason. Right. I don't think she wanted to see Patton, but my dad did, and I saw Planet of the Apes with him, and um, these, now, these are the films that I actually... Um, Hearken to my uh, to my students nowadays to in teaching because I think these were this was a fantastic age of American filmmaking. It was right. really from that from about 60, you, 66 to about seventy six. That ten year period produced just astonishingly great American films and, and
0: it, made by the studios. Made by the is that crazy at the yeah, time? Yeah, I'm thinking about that
1: and and ultimately what killed it of course, was Jaws, right? And the blockbuster. you know, and Blockbuster. From that point on, it, it changed everything and how the studio started doing things and, and, well, and spectacle films. And right. again, not not to take away from the you know the Spielbergs of the world right. and the in and, and the in the geeks you know the film school geeks which who basically started running the business at that point, which was great. But um, you know, prior to that, we still had uh, the Godfather's and the Conversation and Chinatown and. Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Five Easy Pieces and The Last Detail, the Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude, you know, making these movies, these kinds of movies. And there was just nothing like it. Right. You know, these. So Little Big Man, you know, um, you know, these are these are films that I think still really uh, uh, resonate today uh, hugely. Um and the studios have sort of lost sight of that, you know because right. they were they were really socially conscious uh, uh, conscious in a lot of ways um, they pushed the envelope, you know um, and the subject matter was truly adult. the notion of 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 like um, uh, uh, catering to demographics the the the, the pubescent the, uh, right. a boy yeah uh, and action figures and all that unheard of. No way, right? No, he just you know just didn't do that. It was still in the days where you had people like Robert Evans who was running, uh, um, right. you know, Paramount. Apparently, in between, <laughs> uh, his, his, yeah, that well documented, by um, you know the way. <laughs> he, he was uh, he still was somebody who had gut instincts, you know, and mm-hmm. could do things that um, and in greenlit stuff that that you know that we'll never see we haven't seen stuff like that you, you can the only way to find it now is you know in the independent realms independent realms you know, what do you yeah. think about
0: um, there's this sort of a article i read a couple years ago about how like hbo and showtime all these the cable network or um pay per view and the the cable um, channels are now providing that sort of fix for adult drama that um, where the movies Theatrical movies have just becoming sets tentpole spectacles. Yeah. Either of you know um, the avatars fantasy, and, the, the yeah. sci-fi genre, or whatever right. it is, or then or comedies that are you know the the gross out or are R-rated or, right. or what what not comedies. I mean, you you have a little sprinkle of independence mm-hmm. independent films. But the canvas of what's going on in the television spectrum right now, where you have long form, where you can develop a character in a law, you know, a much. Slower pace and, and mm-hmm. more in depth mm-hmm. is is why you're seeing like the su- success of like The Sopranos and Batman sure. and all sure. these things. So, yeah. so I don't know whether or not that sort of fulfilled the 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 niche or the need that once was supplied during the, the late '60s, mid '60s, in the '70s for what the studios were supplying. You know, what I mean, now it's just got fragmented. I, I don't know. That's sort of a yeah. I, I mean, nowadays everything has gotten fragmented. It's it's really broken
1: down. I mean, we once we entered the digital age right everything became fragmented and that's what digitizing analog does you know it breaks things down into these little bits in, into yeah. these little bits you know this whether it's a sound bite or it's a you know it's a bit of information um and that's sort of its job in in one way so we, we we've but we've lost a lot you know and right. in the in, uh, in in that at the same time um you know it's just it's just changed uh, uh, these are they're, they're, this is part of a larger conversation that we'll, we'll, right. we'll get into yeah. here that the benefits and the curses of the digital, the digital world now and digital culture. But uh, um, yeah, in answer to your question, I I would say, yes, indeed. HBO, Showtime, AMC, running Mad Men and stuff. They are filling a niche now where so many of us are, have a thirst for those great adult dramas, right? You know, that, that deal with touchy, Material, Um, um, not so. It's not necessarily high concept material, but it's really important material. Um, Right? You know, I mean, for example, uh, HBO recently doing the. They did the the. You don't know Jack. You know the Jack Kevorkian story. I knew nothing really about Kevorkian other than just seeing the headlines always about him from that. But you know, Pacino really owned that role, and Barry Levinson, you know, came in and directed it, and it was a really it was a really compelling piece of piece of work but there was no way a studio would make that make that movie it would right. have it have to be HBO and of course HBO loves to flaunt the fact that only they HBO can, do, can right. do it you know Literally. and so so I, I think it's great um but you know, again, HBO is part of a larger conglomerate, mega monster that they too have to answer to someone. Right? <laughs> uh, if not, they're in not only their ratings, but you know, it's a corporation, and yeah. so you know, to find truly independent. Stuff you might have to even go further out into the margins, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but comparatively, still to the main, the main studios and the three major networks that we're used to, it's pretty, it's still pretty very uh, controversial and exciting stuff. Right, they do. So well,
0: let me get back to. Do you remember like the first time you read a finished script that got you like turned on, like, oh, I can do this. Well, I
1: don't necessarily recall reading a script and going gaga over it I, right. I recall seeing movies and going just like oh crap that's what I want to write that's you know and, and that, that's what I want to do um so we have to remember you know a, a screenplay is a is a, is only a stepping stone to the final right the final piece of art you know that it is and it's hard it's hard to admit that as writers uh, <laughs> but uh, we do have to remind ourselves if you're a screenwriter that it's a it's a way station <laughs> to the ultimate the, the final product the ultimate vision of right it. okay so so again, in, you know, I would look at a script and I was like, okay, all right. That's, that's okay. But it's the movie that really inspired me. And it's still the movies that really inspire me now. Um, um, I don't get overly excited about reading scripts per se. Um, I, you know, I have to, I just, I want to see the movie, you know, so, so, in so great movies make me want to write great scripts and, but it's always interesting and instructive to look at the scripts that have become great movies. Right. And to see that they, that they are not perfect, um, that sometimes, the, they're far from it. Um, for example, uh, well, whenever you, you, let's say you go to a bookstore and you'll find a, uh, the screenplay of a certain movie right there that right. has that, been published now. It's usually the 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 shooting script that they'll um publish, you know. And so they'll have scene numbers and everything like exactly. that. That's anytime there there are scene numbers on there, you know that's a very late draft. It's something that they probably you know, it was the shooting draft or close to it if they were numbering scenes. Um, Years ago, Frank Darabont, who wrote and directed the Shawshank Redemption, uh, published a version of Shawshank that was not the shooting draft. It was a book w- that I think included the early draft of the script and then uh, and then the shooting draft, something like that. And I'm mad at myself where I never picked that up and, and bought oh, it, but I remember thumbing through it. But Frank had the courage to uh, to go ahead and and print uh, an earlier draft of it, and the thing was a mess. It was <laughs> all, there was a full of strikeouts and crossed out stuff and notes and the margins and things like that and that's what a real script looks like right you know, you know so beware to anyone out there who's considering writing scripts and they think that that has to be all perfect that's just not the case you know a screenplay is um, it cannot be chiseled in stone it really yeah. can't it, um, it 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 has it is a living breathing entity and it will ebb and flow it will inhale it will exhale um it will do things you don't expect sometimes you have to make alterations due to weather to cranky actors to the whims of a studio or a star or director or whatever for good or for worse or whatever these are these are just the things that it's constantly in a state of flux and will be until the the film is shot edited and screen before a paying audience you know that's, that's you know and that and that's the way it is and you have to understand that so you can't be overly precious with it right um, right you know and just think um, I mean if you're starting out and you're trying to write a a, a, a a great writing sample of course you want to make it as good as you can possibly be because you want to get your best foot forward and you want to show people what you're capable of right but once you are working and or in that business you have to to know you have to suck it up man and just know that this thing is going to get mangled (laughs) and trundled under by the hollywood machine sometimes um and and even in the independent realms it doesn't matter because um there was still things are going to be constantly changing because the universe is just throwing you change-ups all the time you Mm -hmm. know okay it's raining we're supposed to shoot a sunny uh, a scene under sun today in, in blazing heat um, okay. The bar is more crowded than than we expected to have our, you know, the scene. to Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. all good. You know, I mean, these are yeah. great mics. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are things where you just constantly, you have to think on your feet and you have to be sort of flexible in terms. of so as storytellers, too, you have to have the acuity of mind and the flexibility to say, okay, that doesn't work. I'm, I can switch this. I can do it here. And I'm probably like, shuffle this around and we'll make that work. And right. Can, boom. And we'll, we'll, we'll fit it for the occasion.
0: When you, you, know, you write, so. do you feel like sometimes I've heard the expression or heard things where sometimes writers discover the story? Like it's sitting up uh, there in a cloud of, of years or of, of moments of inspiration that are just sort of permeating where they start picking it up, like it just starts trickling down and they start. You know, like almost invisible ink, like it starts revealing itself—the story and the shape—that even though your your intention might not have been there originally, right. but as you as it, like you said, ebbs yeah. and flows and evolves, you're discovering it. And it's almost as you just have to be in the right sort of mental space or capacity to grab hold of it and 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 sort of um, let it, I guess, like, yeah, let it evolve. Yeah. And I don't know if. Um, oh yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah, I'm good. This is good stuff. Thanks. So I was wondering if, um, so like when you're, so you're in college, you were taking the writing, the screenwriting class, I guess, right. and getting feedback from your professors. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember like sort of the first um, permeation of like the I- the germ of the idea for your first full length story that you were like, you know what? This would make this would make a good movie, and I think I got a you know you've heard uh, writers or what's that term I got a beat on it, I got a beat on it. Yeah, well,
1: yeah. There's you you bring up a couple of points, but just specifically to to me, um, as I mentioned before, when I was at UCLA, I wrote three scripts that were completely uncommercial. They were just they were bad. You know, I wrote a you know sprawling period piece and a couple other just not not good you know, uh, pieces of work. Um, and then I graduated and I knew that I had to, um, in order to get somewhere, you know, to get a, get ahead in the business, I had to make a conscious effort to write something commercial. You know, just to get on the map. Right. I can be artful and, and and write arty movies later on. You know, but I really need to get it on the get on the map first and get get try to make a living Because at, at that point, I was right. li- I was working in the mailroom of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences, and I and I you know I just uh, which was a great job actually, but because um, it allowed me a lot of time to write during right. the day. But yeah, I I had to um, I couldn't stay there for the rest of my life. Right. So, um, so I said, okay, I'm going to write something commercial and, tr- and write something that could actually get made, you know, for a relatively low sum of money. So at that time, which that translated to write a horror film right okay so then well okay how do you write a horror film or uh even at that time it's like oh god everything's been done already right? <laughs> right. You know? so i was really looking to do something uh different um and so i what I wrote, uh, I wrote a script in that summer um, called Slaughter Alley, which was about a haunted highway or haunted, a stretch of road, of rural road that was haunted by the ghost of a hot rodder who had been killed on it back in 1962. Right. And so he races up and down it in the middle of the night um, in his 57 Chevy Bel Air, you know, running people off the road and claiming souls. And uh. yeah,
0: I mean, as, you, as you're explaining this, I can yeah. completely hear the twangy guitar right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was. It, I mean, yeah. oh, that's yeah, Link Ray,
1: you know, the cramps. I mean, it was very music inspired in that right. sense because it, you know, just like those great big Detroit steel iconic cars, you know, mm-hmm. from the, you know, from the late 50s and 60s all the muscle car era and stuff, Um, you, uh, you know, you hear the, that, that big guitar sound as well. The Ventures and, you know, all those, Eddie Cochran and all these, these, the, the rockabilly sound and stuff. Um,
0: Is it Eddie Rebels? No, Eddie, um, they did Rebel Rouser or he was just a guitar artist, but. Eddie, something, but anyway, yeah, almost like a more of a punk version of that.
1: Well, what, what was interesting, simultaneous with this for me was that I had I was in LA, staying in LA after I graduated, and was really caught up in the music scene in Los Angeles at that point, which was getting swept um, with the real, real kind of I don't know what to call it a renaissance of, of music, uh, but it was it was the punk rock thing that was at the core of it, and the hardcore specifically was taking over. And really having a profound influence on everything, it was basically taking a flamethrower to everything, right, right, um, and just burning it down. So you had, and and that was led by Black Flag and mm-hmm. the Descendants, and um, uh, which oh, are still you know.
0: relevant today. Oh, sure, sure, still you know, and the,
1: the Dead Kennedys up in San Francisco, right. and the, you know, uh, they, they, there was and Social D right. in down in Orange County and stuff. Southern um,
0: California punk scene, so, right. yeah.
1: Um, And to me, it had a huge influence on me on a number of levels, specifically, you know, just creatively how you attack things. Um, And they strip it down. There was no pretension. You just went out and you did it and you made it work and you did it with passion and really with an attitude and uh, there was just something elementally bitchin' about
0: right. it. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: and, it right. and, yes. Oh man, it just was uh, incredible. So I I was witnessing a lot of this and then at the same time um, with, with the hardcore stuff, there was the uh, sort of the art-damaged um, uh, bands that were doing things like this. There were bands like Savage Republic and the Fibonaccis in um, Wall of Voodoo, even that were heavily influenced by film, Right. And so they were doing a lot of like soundtrack stuff. Wall of Voodoo used to do a medley of uh Sergio Leone movies uh, uh soundtracks, so, you know, The Good, and Bad and the Ugly right. and Hang 'em High. They would they would do this in concert and it was just like, "Wow." And that had that big twangy yeah. guitar and it was just like, "Wow, these are this is really really now amazing you, stuff."
0: You, um speaking of Wall of Voodoo, yeah, you um the lead, um, the front man for yeah, quality. Stan Ridgway. Yeah. Now, did you become friends with him working yes. on a project?
1: Yeah. Or well, just a quick aside there. Uh, I was. Um, after I wrote Slaughter Rally, uh, I wanted to write a murder mystery. And what I was doing, my my notion for it was to have – it was a murder mystery that was set in the punk rock underground of L.A. And it was about a, hard, a, a hardcore kid who was accused of killing someone and who had been apprehended. And then his public defender was like a, like a hippie, a liberal. Real liberal hippie who had to, you know, defend this kid, and they were. I was very interested in just the opposing right. sensibilities right. kind of thing, you know. And so I started doing all this um, uh, quote-unquote research, you know, in the in the music scene at the time, and uh, going to I'll see all these different shows, and and I made contact with a number of bands. I just reached out to them one time or another and say, "Hey, could I'm doing this? Would you?" mind if I come to a rehearsal and see what you guys do and everything and everybody was really cool you know the Minutemen was one of those bands and and uh, and stuff and so <laughs>
0: um
1: the script didn't pan out. I I just it, it, it just never quite got over the hump for it. Um, yeah, but uh, I made all these contacts with all these bands and yeah, had very go. r- very good friends, and so that's that's what led then to getting doing some music videos for them and whatever. One of the bands that I really that were very welcoming to me was a band called the Fibonacci's, and mm-hmm. the Fibonacci's had uh, Artie Farty and Ready to Party, as the LA <laughs> Weekly described them. Um, the Fibonacci's were uh, open for of Voodoo at one time and they knew Stan Ridgway very much and so one time I was at Club Lingerie and uh, I forget who was playing but it wasn't the Fibs but I was with the keyboardist of the Fibs John Dentino, and Stan Ridgway and his wife came in um, and I said oh god you know John, can you introduce me to Stan? I said I'm a big fan and I really loved the first time I saw them on stage. I was just like, "Oh, wow. These guys just completely, especially Stan just captured a lot of right, right. how my uh, that sort of eclectic approach to to everything and everything." And he said, "Sure." So, I met Stan and we talked and um, I told him I you know, Wall of Voodoo was actually a big influence in writing Slaughter Rally for right, me. And he right. said, "Oh, send me the script. I'd love to, you know, love to read it." And I said, "Okay." So, I did and uh, a couple weeks later, I... I got a postcard. He actually mailed me a postcard and said, I read your script. I really like it. I'm going to call you in a couple of days with a plan. (laughs) Stan is always scheming. He's always got something working up with a plan. But basically, that started a friendship that still continues today. That's so cool. And and ironically, his manager, um, eventual manager, when he went solo... was my wife's older brother. Um, <laughs> but I, I even before I started dating her, yeah. I knew Chris, but I didn't know he was related to Kate when we how, first met. It was how just crazy. really some, so Stan, Stan and Chris, they both argue they, they they like to take credit for introducing us. Interesting. But well, you're like
0: but, but it sounds like it was just already in the It was already in the, in the works. works right. It was a pretty <laughs> in, yeah. Yeah. But um,
1: uh, I was gonna add w- one of the things that intrigued me about the music scene at that time especially in the rockabilly circle that oh, you would yeah. see is that when the blasters were playing mm-hmm. and, and there were There's a number a I heard yeah in a while. Okay. yeah there were a number of bands that were you know there was the stray cats that were the real big they commercial yeah kind of but r- there yeah there, was some other there the blasters allies. were the big the ones in the l a scene but there were there were some other los lobos was really kind of a rockabilly influence and on mm-hmm. that but but anyway, they would bring out these these crowds that you would see them come up and they pull up in their their vintage cars and these guys would come out in their pompadours and their and their jeans and t-shirt and their their cuffed jeans and their cowboy right. boots or whatever and they and then they would have their their girlfriends and the poodle skirts and them and uh, the Betty Page kind of you know hair and and all of it's that because
0: it's it that scene is like it's a like, greaser scene by like the, the right. poodle skirts like you said it's it's not like. It's not like a happy days cutie. It's it's a little bit the edgier. It was okay. With a, now right. it's like tattoos everywhere, but right?
1: Granted, it was a little edgier then, mm-hmm. but it still struck me. I was still rather amused by it because to me it it, it they, they still struck me as kind of like the posers, you know, <laughs> because right.
0: there had been the real the real guys. Oh. That's me. Thank you. Okay, okay we're, hey, we're back. We just took a little dinner break, but listen, we were talking about Slaughter Alley, right? Which, right. By the way. So it was like one of your first scripts. Yes. This and is my first attempt to write something commercial, yes. But that story is dear to your heart because we've been working on, a little bit, launching your site, sla- com. Correct. Now, yeah. just to let you know, I'm going to take another crack at that map, I think, because I've oh, learned okay. since, since we met last year, uh-huh. I've learned so much about like launch how to you know make some websites how to do just my job recently i've just right. been working in flash lately so oh, and okay. like all this other yeah, stuff yeah. i'm like oh my gosh i think i can go back and like fix what i kind of oh okay. attempt to do but anyway that's in the back burner but one of these days as things get cleared up i think i have a, a way that i can make that thing launch oh that's so, great. so that's great but again it, that's just my interest of like learning stuff like that and, and it each year, I, I get more and more knowledge, and it's like, oh, wait, I can apply this now. Sure, so, sure. Anyway, so was, you write Slatter Alley, right. and you had two other ones. Now, during the process of like writing these scripts, and you were trying to make it something commercially uh, viable, um, was there any moments in there where you felt like... I don't know. Like you felt your groove. Like I know that sometimes I write stuff like it's a lot of times it's painful, but sometimes you get these magic moments where you just feel like when when it's completed or something or like, wow, you know, I did it or I could see this or something like that. Yeah. Um, Like, the question is, where do you find your enjoyment in the writing? Because if you've well, done it so long, you, obviously yeah. there must be some grain of, um...
1: Well, it, Slaughter Alley was was fun to write, and I've and I've done multiple drafts of it over the years. And it uh, looks like I'm going to be doing another one here, maybe sh- very soon, because <laughs> um, I've got some interest in it yet again. Um... <clears throat> It's the script that refuses to die. It, uh, it's, it. This is what I was saying that you know scripts are alive and breathing, and this is uh, some kind of like a, a monster that just lurks in the primordial slime somewhere. and That every now and then somebody keeps coming back and coming back to right. it and
0: saying, "Wow!" Isn't, it, isn't know, that the, like the story of like uh, Lawrence Kazin, when his one of her early scripts, The Bodyguard, and Costner. You just saw it on a shelf. Something like one of his early, early scripts. And he said, I'll grab that, and they made that. But it was, you know, things like those stories where they've just been around for so long. Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, look, the the lesson I've learned from it is that nothing is ever dead in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just uh, you put it in a drawer for a while, and then... You know, six months, a year later, bring it back out. And show it around again. Um, that's if it's a spec script. but
0: Right. Well, then again, um, even that now it's like leaded in, um, bled into the actual finished films with what Lucas has done with his Star Wars films. Yeah. And I just read somewhere the new Blu-ray release. Right. He added some more, like, dialogue to Darth Vader in Return <laughs> of the Jedi where he, like, screams no. Like during the uh, death scene of like yeah. the emperor or something, and so fans are like again like, what the hell are you doing? Wow. So anyway, so yeah, even well. in the film form, it has life and it breathes and sure, <laughs> sure, yeah, and that's
1: interesting now that that it's come to that to where it's so except uh, uh, easy and accessible mm-hmm. to be able to get to make, you know, slight alterations, nip and tucks here and there and all that. I mean, that's the, that doesn't surprise me. It's It goes back to the, I think it was Ezra, Ezra Pound who said, uh, uh, you know, nothing is, a poem is never, never finished, it's abandoned. And uh, so I, mean, I think that's apropos for any kind of art, you know, you just... Uh, including scripts, at some point you just gotta abandon it because it's n- <laughs> it's never
0: quite done. It will always be a work in progress. You've got to make a T-shirt of that <laughs> and have like those ready for like those writer conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's actually I mean, pretty because, good. Um, you've seen these like uh, cute like shirts like BustaTees or somewhere. Right, that right. Have some really funny things. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great great little saying. so what,
1: what like nothing is ever finished it's, it's like, abandoned on the back it's
0: just something like abandon it so oh. like this you know and they give like the little web, you know like a website in the back something to like t-shirts that are specific <laughs> to that market right. of writers but yeah. people like would want to like walk by and go what does that mean abandon it because then it strikes of our conversation, like you right, know, just sure. enough, like what the hell is that that term yeah. or that phrase yeah. means? Yeah. So, yeah. That's anyway,
1: interesting. Um, well, anyway, uh, uh, kind of back to the to the question. Um, my was it the
0: inspiration or well, just were like when you are like working I, and you yeah. have these moments of like where you just feel like you are, like you are the shit, like you are, like you know, what I mean yeah. like you feel like you are, like oh my gosh, I am a genius, but or sometimes you don't. You know? Well, I I. I think I think if you
1: ever start thinking thoughts like that, you're you're really asking for it. You're doomed. You know, um, that's the day you really start worrying. (laughs) I really think I had the good fortune one time to meet uh, David Lean, you know, director of Lawrence of Arabia and stuff. And uh, uh, a friend of mine was assisting his uh, restoration of Lawrence of Arabia, and I was. Uh, she knew that I was a big fan, and she uh, arranged for me to meet him at uh, and, and sneak in on a screening of it that wow. Spielberg and a few other people were there. and So he came back and shook my hand there afterwards. But she told me later that he had told her this story about when he was directing Lawrence of Arabia, and the day came for him to shoot the scene where... <laughs> Very late in the movie, where Lawrence is leading uh, 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 the the Arabs on the mar- on uh, cutting a swath through the Turkish lines and heading straight towards Damascus, and then he has to make a tactical choice of either wipe out and slaughter this Turkish column that it just had raped and pillaged a village mm-hmm. an Arabic village or move on to Damascus in greater glory and the, right. the, the, the the smart tactical thing to do but Lawrence Ops succumbs to the thing where he goes and massacres the Turkish column right and sort of satiates his uh, his his need for bloodletting yeah, in a right. way and 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 uh, Lean told her that the day that they filmed that scene, he drove. the The limo came and got him in, at his hotel, and then they drove the, the hour and a half out to the to the location or wherever it was. <laughs> Lean got out of the car and looked at you know, the hundreds of extras all in uniform and costume, you know, waiting, waiting for his, his first command, you know, and he looked at all these people, cast and crew, just looking at him and he got struck with the, with diarrhea, just (laughs) immediately had to jump back into the car and and told the, the chauffeurs to just take me back to the hotel, took him back to the hotel and he camped out, in the bathroom for two or three hours, I guess, or whatever. And then, uh, um, uh, finally got enough courage up to go back out to the scene and direct it. But he didn't, he, the, the point was he didn't have any idea how to direct that scene. Oh, and he really? was so struck with, with fear and insecurity that, you know, he was crapping in his pants. I mean, he just was literally, I mean, he just got struck with it. And so he said, uh, you said to my friend Jude that uh, you know that just goes to show you it can hit anyone anytime right. you know it's just it's it's always when you're when you're when you're putting yourself out there there's a there's a great risk there that you're that right. you're taking right. you're overcoming a great amount of fear there or or you you're embracing the fear or you're crossing over you're taking these big risks and stuff and So it takes great effort to, to do it. But he said somebody like the implication was somebody like him, who's got all these accolades and stuff like that. He's sometimes they just don't know how to do it. They're scared. They're scared too. You know, I
0: am. Thank you. Um,
1: and so, so I always thought that was, that, that was a great story. I felt very privileged to have heard that, you know, secondhand, right. You know, um, uh, and, and, and so anyway, back to what we were talking about, if you, and if you, you know, the, the times where you're really starting to feel cocky and say, damn, I'm good. Right. Right. Um, is, uh, you know, that's where you, you could be into a little bit of trouble. My best, probably arguably my best writing is probably stuff that I was mortified
0: that I wrote, you know, <laughs> that I was
1: scared. I was scared really to pass on because I was afraid. Afraid of the reaction it would get, that people would just think what are you thinking are you out of your mind for god's sakes we're paying you all this money to write this dreck you know you pretentious you know right. son of a bitch or you know whatever art damaged uh, you know kind of geek um, you know all these all you know all these thoughts run through your mind i mean it's just you know racing you know, your, your mind races with a lot of irrational or irrational stuff sometimes but um, i think that and and again fear and insecurity can paralyze you right when you're when you're working but the key thing is to have enough of it that it keeps you on edge, and it keeps you vigilant, and keeps you always um, uh, uh, wanting to take a risk. You know, enough, just enough, to where you won't settle for the ordinary and the safe. But at the same time, you know, it—you don't want—you it, you just want to push yourself, just just enough. You know, right. to so to just keep yourself on edge with it. You know, don't settle for the low hanging fruit if you can. Yeah, yeah. And that that is, I think, a really a, a, you know a really valuable lesson. When when you start feeling like you're dialing it in, mm-hmm. and oh, I can do this behind my back, you know, then I think you're kind of losing something. You're losing a passion. You're losing um, you're losing the healthy fear uh, of of your stuff. I read something recently about um um. Uh, it's 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 in a book called the, uh, I think it's in this book called the War of Art, um, that's written by uh, a novelist and screenwriter. Uh, it's the guy that wrote uh, Bagger Vance, and don't ask me his name because I couldn't summon his name <laughs> right now at the moment. But he he was quoting or or using the anecdote of um, how how actors especially famous actors choose their roles why they make the choices of it. and he noted that many actors respond to that question by saying oh he was citing uh, on the actor studio okay. inside the actor studio okay. um and he said invariably they get that answered that question how do you choose the roles that you that you do and what prompts you and invariably they answer um It scared me. Oh. You know? The good ones. Yeah. 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 And I chose because it scared me. So translation is that it was something I haven't done
0: before. It was
1: challenging. And I wanted to rise to the occasion. I wanted to meet that challenge. You know, I wanted to do something that I haven't done before. Right. Right. You know, and go, you know, boldly go where no man has (laughs) gone before, you know, with the... Be it the Starship and Enterprise or your screenplay, you know. I um, was
0: up in, uh, until three thirty last night working because I was scared of um, not being able to um, wrestle Flash, the program. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to learn this program, yeah. Flash, and yeah. like I don't know it. I'm online, right. I'm learning as I'm going, yeah. and it's such a high learning curve. Uh-huh. But it's still, it was a challenge, and like. I don't I don't feel necessarily tired because I was motivated all last night sure. because this just sheer desire of like I've got to learn this, I've got to figure this out. How did you how do they do this? How did and then just because of that desire and wanting to know mm-hmm. and then you and then getting to get that place where you kind of break it, where just like you accomplished it, where where you started and where you end up. It's such a far journey, but you're like, wow. I did it. I was kind of scared jumping into it because I didn't know how I was going to get, you know, where where to start. But as you finish and you found out you could actually do something or finish a task, yeah. that's always, uh, you know, satisfying. Yeah. So I guess for me that's – so now coming back to you, it, it's like you have this um, – you have three scripts that you've abandoned (laughs) yes yes yeah and so right yeah consciously (laughs) so when was the first what was the first gig you had that um that was like where you got paid as a screenwriter well um
1: actually i got i got paid to do a rewrite on slaughter alley so what what happened was i wrote it um then that summer of 82 i think it was and then uh I gave it to a friend of mine who had gone to film school with. Okay. Um it was actually a former roommate of mine, Richard Green, who's now a uh, very powerful agent at CAA, actually. Um, <laughs> there you go, see? There you go. And Richard had, at that time, uh, aspirations to be a producer. And so he was working um, for a true producer a real working producer real working and, producer. as and it, that's, a guy it. named bill finnegan who
0: made tv movies and such um as opposed to those, you know, who in our know, Hollywood, there's a lot of producers. Yes, <laughs> but, yes, yeah. But it's like true. a true working.
1: Yes, paid, yes, yeah. Pro- same, produce, exactly. Producer. Same, and you can apply that to writers and actors and all of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to order another uh, pint well, here uh, if, when he comes back again, yeah. but I'm just keeping one eye on him. Um, so what happened was. Oh, uh, can I get a no. no? No, okay, but no, no. I actually, I want to go for something a little redder. Yeah, in the color. You, you, you had a nice pour. You were took into someone there earlier. The Nelson O'Reilly, the IPA. Oh, really? Oh, it is an IPA. Is that red? Really? Wow! Wow, that's interesting. For something that's red, that's going to be maltier. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would recommend getting the working Skull Splitter. Okay, then. Oh, <laughs> that. Oh, the Skull Splitter. You've okay, had it I've had it, but I've had it in the body. have that in draft. Yeah, okay. You oh, you do. Okay, I don't want to go. I want to get stick with the draft then. Do Do you have a the, the thistle? It was a thistle
0: right? Yeah, yeah. They have, bring that. You that Thank you. Uh, actually, can I just get some water? I just water, need to yeah. get oh, hydrated
1: here. Um. So, Richard, I gave the script to Richard because he said, "Let me, let me take this to." the producer I'm working for, Bill Finnegan. And, um, he said, I think he might like it because Richard read it and really liked it and thought, wow, this is, this is cool. And so I nice said, great. Um, so he took it to his boss and lo and behold, the boss loved it. And they, um, optioned it, uh, from me. And then they, what was that feeling like?
0: It like was that first,
1: it's surreal. Just, it's you're through the roof you know you're just uh it's just an exciting wonderful feeling and you could just feel like wow i could do this the rest of my life
0: do you have like (laughs) it's all there's like a a a moment of uh thank you oh thanks is there like a moment of i don't know where all of a sudden like your whole future is right in front of you oh yeah like boom that instance like yeah. I'm, on, I'm on my way and, and all this oh, stuff. Yeah yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, You line it up right real fast. <laughs> you, know, you can just see it, you know, like billboards on the on the on the freeway. Uh
0: man. How is that? That's good.
1: That's good. You wanna try that? Yeah, let me um, just give it a quick sip.
0: That looks um very frothy.
1: Yeah, it's a, a nice head on that. Mmm. So good beer. So, the, so, so they have, they, they, have the they optioned option. it, um, and then they sat on it for like a year uh, for one thing or another. Um, Reality. Uh, yeah, yeah. It just, <laughs> it, just, it just took a while. And then um, I think it was that following summer, they they called up and said, "We, I think we're going to get some action on this now. We're going to start rolling on it. And I think they renewed the option. They optioned it for one year, and I think they renewed the option, and then... Then what happened was they got some money and they asked me to do a rewrite on it. And they had started, they were getting a director and they had uh, Judd Nelson and Alexandra Paul um, uh, cast. What, what year and was this? This like was 84? about 80, no, this was 83. No, oh, so 68. eighty three. Before Judd Nelson oh, yeah. with Judd Nelson. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, we knew who Judd Nelson was. But um, the Breakfast
0: Club hadn't come out yet.
1: The Breakfast Club hadn't come out yet. He had done. Um, forget what he had done before that that garnered a fair amount of attention so he was a cool he was a cool actor right right we all like oh yeah that's cool um so what happened was i did the rewrite i got like five thousand dollars to do a rewrite on it and i I remember and you didn't
0: have an agent at the time did you
1: well that okay quick quick aside on that there's a lot of different things. Slaughter Rally is instructional for those listening <laughs> in many different ways.
0: Okay. This is first, the stuff that people love. Okay. They want to know yeah. how you got your for,
1: Yeah. First of all, let me roll back. I've literally finished writing the end on Slaughter Rally, the very first draft of it. Um, and I took, because I lived in Westwood at the time, I said, oh, I'm going to go take a walk into the village and, uh, you know, get a cup of coffee or a beer or something like that. I felt like, like celebration. And, yeah, yeah <laughs> celebrate. so I walked into Westwood village, which at that time still had bookstores. <laughs> and I remember going into, um, it was like Hunter's books that was there on Westwood Boulevard. And I walked in and prominently displayed on a case uh, and the whole little setup as you walk in is Stephen King's Christine, which oh, is had the yes. cover of it was. Um, uh, the car, the right. car, you know, and basically the grill mm-hmm. of of that, uh, I think it was an old Chrysler. And I looked at that and I thought, oh no, don't tell me. No. It's no, it can't oh. be about like, and it wasn't quite the same, but boy, but it was still, close enough. It, it was, was an like, old car, oh, I right. couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So that, that, first of all, that was lesson number one, which is that, you know, there are, like you were talking about earlier, there are ideas up there in the cloud that you just sort of take well, if you don't act on the, on the idea that you have, somebody else is going to act on it as well. Right. And one of my instructors at UCLA used to say that, look, ideas are literally out there floating around in the ether Mm -hmm. and it's not uncommon at all for someone or several people to latch on to the same idea at the same time. Right. And it's not a case of somebody ripping off someone else or anything. It's just sometimes you all, in, you can call it the collective unconscious, you can yeah. call it any synchronicity, you can call it any number of things, but it is a reality. It happens. So
0: Here, here. I'm a testament to that as well. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so
1: my only advice in that front is that it will happen to you sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh act on your ideas. You get an impulse, you get a creative impulse, then act on it right away, you right. know, if you can, you know. Sometimes it's just not possible. And you know, and sometimes there's not quite enough of a of a an idea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so that was that. Then so anyway, um I did this I did this rewrite on Slaughter Alley, they were on the fast track. They were going to heading into production. Alexander Paul, Judd Nelson starring in it. I was doing this rewrite. I finished the rewrite, I remember this very well, on Halloween, 1980, I guess it's 83 at that point. And then um, uh, two weeks before they were scheduled to go before cameras, the money disappeared. It evaporated. Ah, that story. And, and, uh, (laughs) oh, and, oh, I forgot to say, we got the proverbial green light after my rewrite on it, okay? The green light, they're going forward, it's happening. Boom. I quit my job at the academy, and I was kind of like, so long, mailroom, so long, (laughs) suckers. You're never going to, you know, you're never going to see me again, you know, except when I'm. Walking up the red carpet to collect my little gold man, <laughs> <laughs> slaughter alley. <my> <laughs> and uh, well, that's what I was saying. You know, you, just after that option, that initial payment of like, wow, I am truly a, you right. know, Boom! It's just you're getting, you can see the billboards on that highway lined right. up all the way to the horizon. What you're going to do? You know, the old, it's all laid out for you. And so then the money is yanked two weeks before the start date. It just fell apart. I never got an answer as to why why it happened, and suddenly everything came to a screeching, and I mean screeching halt. Yeah. So the big payday that I was going to get once they started filming right. never happened. And so I actually had to go back to the Academy and ask, in the most humiliating uh, circumstances, ask for my old job back. Which they gave me.
0: And, <laughs> I'm sure and, they've and, seen it all. Uh, no, sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> God love them. And uh, but that taught me such a valuable lesson. You know, just such a valuable lesson. Um, at very early on, in, about the film industry, how volatile it is, and no matter how good it looks or whatever, there are there are things, there are bolts of lightning that can strike at any given moment. Um, out there that will just derail even the most seemingly the most soundest of projects. So um, uh, so just always be aware of that do not count your chickens before right. they hatch because it's just too many things can happen until an audience until your film is p- playing before an audience who has paid money to see it <laughs> in a theater, you know in, near you, um, man. Don't, it doesn't exist. It does, us. you know. Just keep keep knocking on wood the whole way. Just be lucky. You can even, you know, you, you've gotten you've gotten that far. So, um, so then, in answer to the agent, um, so when they first made the offer uh, to option it, I was. Um, I had no agent, I had no representation right. at all, so and, and so i didn 't know what to do <laughs> yeah, so um uh, through some friends of good friends of mine, um, they knew they they recommended an agent to me. They made a call to him, and this guy came in and negotiated a deal and suddenly, and this was another valuable lesson I learned the the figures that they were offering me directly were suddenly twice as high as I ultimate after the agent got into the into right. the business so he basically negotiated a better deal for me
0: so he got his cut right. so He
1: cer- certainly got his cut but he also you know they stepped in and they uh, made sure that I wasn't taken advantage of which, uh, because you, you know go. you're yeah. young and you're hungry and you think yeah yeah I'll take you know take anything that they want to want to throw at you but they uh, this agent came in his name was Shelly Weil and Shelley came in and got that did a good job on that, on that first deal however However, Shelley wouldn't take me on as a as a full as a, a legitimate client at his agency um, because um, they didn't represent. Well, he, as he, he, he would keep me on as what he called a pocket client, which was be kind of in his uh, back pocket. Yeah, that but, term, right? Yeah, right, the but I wasn't a regular client yet, based on the merits of a quote unquote uh, uh, exploitation script. Got so, it. so you know, Slaughter Alley was still, for him, didn't merit a, you know, real representation yet. So so that's how – so I had – I was his pocket client for a while, and so he wasn't going to do anything for me. He would be there to negotiate a deal for me, but I wasn't going to be able to get out and meet other people and or or move on the success of, of – or the limited success of Slaughter Alley. So what happened was I went back. I had my – took back my job at the, at the mailroom fell into a deep funk of a depression where I was like Xeroxing my face every day. And you know, <laughs> because thinking I'm never going to get out of here. I'm going to die an old man in the mailroom, you know, and all, all, all this stuff. It was just, Oh, it was so depressing. Um, and I felt I was never, I wasn't going to find anything worth writing about yeah. again. And so then, then what happened? And during this time, I was, um, going to all these punk shows and I was starting to make music videos for, Mm -hmm. for Black Flag and Henry Rollins and, and... What do you say make music like?
0: Were you, um... Cinematographer, director, part of the crew. I was
1: uh, I, I was directing them. You right. know, yeah. You know, so I mean, basically, I just was going to these guys. I went to the Men Men after a show, and I said I talked to Mike Watt, the bass player, and I said, Mike, you know, I can make a. I had a couple of beers, and I said, Mike, I can make a, I can make a video for you, you guys, for like you know, three hundred dollars. And Mike said, okay, let's do it. Do you, mean, and, do you recall the, any songs, the, the videos that you've done? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, uh, for the Miniman, it was uh, This Ain't No Picnic. Um, and then we, uh, in the same session we shot, we went down, and they were performing live that night, too. We were shooting on a weekend, and so we shot on a Saturday mm-hmm. and a Sunday, and then they sh- they were performing Saturday night at a big punk rock show down at the Olympic Auditorium in downtown L.A., which used to be a, an arena for, like, a, you know, old wrestling right gigs and stuff like that it was just a concrete slab and uh, perfect <laughs> so uh, we had all the camera equipment and everything and I had the crew and we were all young I said look I'll pay everybody you know we'll, we'll you guys let's get some pizza and let's go down to the freaking show okay. and we'll we'll um, shoot um, shoot stuff what would you shoot? And, and we'll and we'll shoot. Um, I said I want to shoot them doing um, uh, this. Um, uh, Ain't talking about love, which was their cover of the Van Halen opus. Yeah, yeah. You know, Van yeah. Halen's first big hit, Ain't talking about love. And and when you know when Va- Van Halen performed it, uh, it's like six minutes long. Right. You know, right. and then it finally climaxes with you know Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. You know, and that whole um, the Miniman did it in thirty-seven seconds, <laughs> and basically they just took the last um, the. Last last uh, stanza of lyrics and then uh, you know I've been to the edge I stood and looked down you know I lost a lot of friends there I got no time to mess around no way and then um, hey 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 you know hey 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 and that was it and, and they played it really fast so I told the Minutemen I said let's, let's do this live you know I mean, I'm going to shoot you guys right. live performing this but try to performing at the tempo you remember recording it because we had no playback really. Right, you know not, I had a right. cassette of a song <laughs> that I was playing back for, for the stuff earlier in the day. And so um, um, and they said, okay and I said, D- do one other thing the song is so short just play it twice. <laughs> So I have time to switch camera positions because I had two cameras right. and I said I just want my two guys to switch, you know, angles so we can get right. full on coverage, right? And and he said, Sure, you know, we'll do it. So so we get down there, we get and it's this big punk show. There's like half a dozen bands on on there, but they were pretty high up in the in the order. And so we we were there and we were right on the edge of the proscenium and they had all the camera stuff in there. And I, And they told me where it was going to be in their set, you know. And so I said, okay. And they gave me the signal, and I said, roll the cameras. Then they started playing the song and the guys were, were were shooting. And then the song ended 37 seconds later.
0: And then
1: and I said, great. Now we're going to switch this. They just went right back into it without <laughs> so any trying. break. And I said, Mike, no, no, you know, give me a break. And, and D Boone, you know, on the guitar was just, I remember him just kind of shrugging like, Oh, Amen. sorry, dude, you know, rock and <laughs> roll. Punk rock. Punk rock. <laughs> so I, I had, um, uh, good, my good friend, Bill Judkins was doing uh, second unit quote, Second unit, right. which was basically he had an old spring wound oh, no. Bell and Howell sixteen right, millimeter right. camera that was like the leftover from World War One or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, and Bill was right next to me, and I remember he just scrambled up onto the stage, he just clambered up there right away, and as soon as they started doing the second version, and uh, got behind them looking out at the uh, audience, and nice. got a great got a great angle. My other friend John Hart couldn't do it because the camera was too um, too big, he just yeah, couldn't get right. it up. It was an airflow aerophil- Alex and- so Bill got got these great shots but the problem was Bill's camera was so old the 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 spring on the camera um uh, as it would get lower in the wind it would start slowing down mm-hmm. so when the film starts moving slower through the aperture you capture more action on <laughs> each frame so basically when you project it everything starts speeding up it's like an old silent film right, you know right. and so the last footage bits of them they're just like jumping around they look like you know buster keaton it was just it was crazy but once we started cutting it together it kind of added to the whole frenetic quality of the video and and then we we did some in this because it was early 80s we could solarize some video and stuff and so we added some kind of effects to it and it's just it's i have it on my website you can you can see it. I gotta but, check it out. Yeah, but MTV played it as the world's shortest video. It made the MTV news. I never saw it, I saw that, but apparently Kurt Loader introduced it as the world's shortest video at the time, and oh that, which is, is something like that. But I, I thought was pretty cool. But um, this ain't no picnic. The one that we really did that was sort of legitimate that that played quite a while on MTV, and and. Uh, um, and, and actually a lot of that footage, all the outtakes and everything else were, uh, proved to be pretty valuable because, you know, Dee Boone, the guitarist for the Minutemen was killed in a car wreck, um, ah. late in December of that year. This is 84. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's great having some really good, great images of him right. performing, although we don't have sound on, on it, but there's some really crisp stuff. And then I did another one for them. Um, no, the, yeah, later later that year, um uh this ain't uh, not this ain't, King of the Hill, uh which we shot on video at the wow. time and we had a steady cam for that. We really stepped up.
0: You know. <laughs> um so um So you did all this stuff. You know. Know. So you were, um what okay. what doors are that open for you? Well do you do you think that um or that you saw on top of your writing? <laughs> All right, sorry, we're back. Okay, okay so, so you've done you well, making what, punk rock videos. Yeah. So, so what I was of- my my idea at the
1: time was like, okay, cool. I'm 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 getting my some, some directing experience now doing these these music videos, you know, and uh, and it was again, it was real, real. Shoe st- string budget it kind was of punk stuff. Rock. It was totally yeah. punk rock, um, but SST Records was really happy with the mm-hmm. with the uh, the Minutemen videos, and so they started talking to me about doing something with uh, with Black Flag. That was a big deal. Yeah, it was because they were Black Flag. Basically, ran SST. Right.
0: At this and, time, it was Henry Rollins was head of it, wasn't he? No. Wasn't, well, well, yeah. Because uh, it wasn't the original? Well, yeah, the, my memory's old. Black Flag was
1: always Greg Ginn and, okay. and, and Chuck Dukowski, but then Chuck eventually left um, and just continued to sort of run SST, but but Greg Ginn started SST Records, and he was the guitarist for Black Flag, Okay, and so Henry, excuse me, was not the original... Yeah, no. I mean, uh, Vocalist, there were several before Henry, um, but he was the one that finally stepped in and became really the face of Black Flag, right. for, Because Henry really relished, I think, being the the front man there, yeah. and and he was uh, you know a formidable personality. Um, and so,
0: who formed the Circle Jerks
1: after that? Who well, formed- uh, Chris Morris, and he he would been Chris Morris was the original uh, vocalist for Black Flag, right? Okay, and, then he um, left and-, and he sang on like Nervous Breakdown and some of those really that that very first uh, EP, 45s that they did. Um, I was and that- then and then he went on to be, he left and to start Circle Jerks.
0: I was up at a uh, uh, Skywalker Sound a couple uh-huh. years ago. Uh huh. And they had a project there. They had all the original masters for the Black Flag, um, you know, albums. That really? They were remastering. Oh, wow. And it's, it was just classic. Like in wow. Look at this box. They were showing us, oh, like, this project they were working on. I'm just like.
1: That's interesting. Crazy. Black Flag uh, meets Skywalker yeah, Ranch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a, there's a clash of stuff right there. But, um um, and that's you know, that's another story, story. working with, with okay. Henry and, and, and all that. But, you know, by my, I was hoping that w- what this would do would, would give me continued cred, mm-hmm. you know, as a director. And then my writing career would be kind of moving along simultaneously, right. you know, with this. So that eventually I would be, I could parlay it into a thing where I write something and say, okay, I want to direct this. Okay, and and hoping that somebody would give me that option, would give me that chance. Um, What happened? then was I'm back at the mailroom Right. And I'm like in a funk now because the the production right. fell apart and, um, and I just didn't think I was going to get anywhere out. So like I was saying, I've seen all these punk shows and really be inspired by the music. And I, that's when I, I really r- tried to write that failed murder mystery thing mm-hmm. that fell apart. And it just, it just didn't come to come together. So I also started a record label shortly after this too, wow. but that, that, but that was a little further down the line. But, um, so anyway, still in working there, um, I ran into another old friend of mine that I'd gone to film school with there you and, go. and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, <laughs> fuck, I'm licking stamps in the mailroom, dude. I've I'm, kind of, I'm like bummed. And he said, well, whatever happened to Slaughter Alley? He said that was a great script and i said i'm just sitting there on a shelf and he said give it to me he said i'm working i'm working in the mail room at the william moore's agency and he said oh, you know i can't tell you the crap i have to read every day and a lot of this is by in a lot of the scripts are by people who are making a lot of money he said that slaughter Alley is just as good as any of the stuff that i'm reading so let me get let me get it to a couple of young agents there that i have in mind and i said okay so he did and um uh, within a couple of weeks, I, I was asked to come into William Morris and I met with a couple of young agents there. Uh, Rick Jaff and Carol Yumpkus were their names, and they, they loved the script and they signed me. Um and uh that was uh just like, boy, suddenly it was like, oh well yeah. being represented by people my age. Whereas Shelley Weil was a ah, very old, right. much older guy. There you go. And now here were people that like in my age bracket speaking my language, right? Mm-hmm. Um and they just loved it. And they said we're gonna get you out of meetings and we'll start, you know, we're gonna start finding some things for you. And I said, fantastic. So I was really emboldened by that. Um Rick Jaffa incidentally um, left uh, a couple years or three, three, three years or four years later um, as my agent um, to become a writer himself and he just recently, he and his wife just recently wrote Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's done all right. Okay. You know? and uh, yeah. yeah, But, um, but he was, a, he was a terrific guy and a uh, terrific agent, you know, for me at the time. And I remember meeting him the first time and he said, I got to tell you, I said, I I got your script. And I read it. And I couldn't put it down. He said, when it was done, I threw it in the air. I was so happy reading a really good script. This is a really awesome script. I love it. You know, and this was just like, oh, God, thank you. Hearing stuff like that right, right. from somebody really in the know, yeah, you know, who says, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to, we're going to. We're going to get you some work, you know, based off of it. It was still under option with the company that Ah, had, so it was tied up. They couldn't go out and try to resell it. But they said we're going to we're going to use this as a calling card for you and get you out there now and start start. Yeah, yeah, start you know things. So that's um, that's what what led to my first bit of employment, which I can tell you about now, or we'll hold until next. We'll we'll take it later. I think we'll wrap it up for tonight. I
0: think this is great. This is. this is better than I expected, but oh, good. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it's—I feel like there's so much more. There's so much more we could talk about, and I think that the uh, the audience of one, whoever's listening to this podcast. <laughs> Yeah. to get her a real kick out of it. <laughs> okay, but um, yeah, so let's wrap it up, and then sure. um, we'll catch up another. You know, week sure. Or so. We've kind
1: of jumped around all over the place with music, and, and yeah, but it's good. Else. It's, it's oh, still good stuff. Oh, but let me finish a thought though, which was okay. uh, maybe you can put this back into the context that it really should have been. Okay. In. When I was earlier talking about going to these the shows and like the seeing the blasters and and a lot of this rockabilly stuff that was happening, um, they struck me all as being a little. Little bit like posers, right? And I and and I I felt very acutely um, that you know there would have been a generation or two before them who were the real McCoys, if you uh, will. right. That were the real the real rockabilly guys, the guys who were sniffing glue and racing their cars (laughs) at three o'clock in the morning. And like, you know, drinking, they got a pint of slow gin in the back pocket in high school, you know, and, 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 and would rumble with a chain and a, and a tire iron. And I always was thinking about, boy, it'd be really, it's amusing to, what would happen if some of those guys came and, met up with these kind of poser right, right. rockabilly pussies, you know, and, and really come to rumble. What would happen? You know, what would happen to these kind of posing guys who look like really tough? Right. Right. Uh, you know, if the real McCoys showed up one night on their doorstep. So that was kind of an impetus to start writing Slaughter Alley. Was like, Interesting. Really, what would happen if the past came and visited upon the future? Yeah. And how, how would either hold up, you know, it so, is
0: cool. And, it, so and it's was, such a cool little subculture. Um, yeah, like um, you know like Conan um, Conan O'Brien is a huge rockabilly fan. He's got his own, own rockabilly band and you know Oh
1: really? I didn't know that yeah, was he, his brand of, uh, his brand, of oh, music. Oh yeah, he oh, goes really?
0: he goes sometimes on these little tours like when his hiatus of a show where he and his little rockabilly band play across the you know country. Sure. So but he's got this little he's got this affinity. That's probably why his hair is a pompadour all the time or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well that's a, that sort of explains yeah. a lot. He's a Harvard you know, guy, right. whatever he is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh. It'd be funny if he met up with the past. No.
1: <laughs> well that's kinda of what I'm talking about, you know. So you know, you look at it, I mean again, it's partly our, our 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 fascination with people like Johnny Cash and right Carl Perkins and all those all those early guys you know they weren't they weren't bright educated guys yeah. they were tough as nails though and they were really they were the real deal and uh so I
0: just, you know, I always just kind of wonder what would happen, what would happen. So How funny. All right, yeah. cool. Well, yeah. We can wrap this up, and then okay. we'll we'll continue another time for sure. And I know I'm interested. There's so much more to talk about. So yeah. And then hopefully the next time we talk, I'll, I'll mention whatever the next steps of projects are going on, and we'll catch up on what you're doing. Yeah, there was kind of, of a
1: cluster of activity there at, at, at a period there that really, um, you know, it—, it our career in Hollywood is very streaky. It can be like mm-hmm. a like a hot streak in sports, you know. Where if you're if you're hot and you're you're working it, then uh-huh. you know it, work uh, it. You know surf that wave. You know uh, like that. Because, term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because you never know when it, if if another good one is going to come or not. Right, know, right. You know, again, thanks Hollywood is always throwing the change-up ball at you. So I'm mixing my me- my sports metaphors. <laughs> I <laughs> know, you know, I got about three or four of them in the span of uh, two or three sentences here. But I think you get the gist of what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> I like it. You lost me on the wave when I was just my brain started thinking about the wave. Okay, yeah, no, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Well, All right. Cool. Okay. Well, All right, Scott. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. We'll catch up later. Cool. Bye, guys.